it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Fitato back to the pulpit. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter, reading verses 5 through 13. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's Word as it's found in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would sweeten your word in our hearts and in our minds together today so that we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling you have given to us and that we might honor you more along the path of life. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior, who together with you and the Holy Spirit reigns as one God forever and ever. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, we uh, interrupted our series on the seven I am sayings to do a sermon on why Advent. And the sermon was so long, we decided that we were all better off spreading it over two Sundays instead of trying it in one. There are about nine points in the sermon. We got partway through six. So we're really picking up uh, midstream. We're We're really looking at that question that was asked about 1100 A.D. by that fellow named Anselm, Cordus Homo. Why did God become a man? And as we saw, Anselm was really interested in something fairly narrow, that is the doctrine of the atonement. We're looking at something very broad, that is the message of the whole Bible. So in a sense... uh, Our text is very, very narrow. It's just one line out of the Lord's Prayer. And that is, as in heaven, so on earth. How does that explain the reason for Advent? On the other hand, to really understand that petition, we have to, in effect, study the whole Bible. So kind of our text for this sermon has been the whole Bible. So we ought to be happy that we can do a sermon on the whole Bible in just two weeks. I think I probably told you at one time, when I was a new Christian, 
uh, in high school, my senior year. And um, in my in high school, okay, if, if you're in school, plug your ears. Your parents don't want you to hear this. I never did any homework. I mean, I, I never studied. Um, my grades reflected it. We had what was called open study hall and open lunch, which meant you could leave campus. We arranged our schedule so that you could uh, have study hall, lunch, study hall, which meant half the day we were in the pool hall all through high school. Um, but uh, at any rate, I got converted it, coming in, in my it, last semester of senior year in high school, and things changed pretty radically. I had a book report to do, and uh, so I did a book report, and I decided my textbook that I was going to report on was the Bible. And I did a book report in a senior year English class on the, on the whole Bible in about 15 minutes. My English professor actually liked it. He just said, maybe next time you could narrow your scope a little bit. Uh, but at any rate, uh, we're, we're really looking at that one petition, as in heaven, so on earth. Let's just remind ourselves of the terrain that we crossed last week. We started by seeing that there are, in fact, two realms. We tend to think there's only one realm, the realm of what we can see put under a microscope, but there are two realms. Our Father in heaven, there's a heavenly realm, there's an invisible realm, it's the realm of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. There's an earthly realm, a visible realm, it's the realm of humans. And so there are two realms. The second thing we saw was that in the heavenly realm, God is not alone. God is surrounded by, and the Bible has various names, the sons of God. Psalm 29, for example. Psalm 89 that we looked at. God has a heavenly family made up of heavenly beings. He's not alone. Uh, he said in Genesis 1, let us... The divine counsel make man in our image, and so God singular, the creator, uh, made humanity in his image. And God reigns, the third thing we saw is God reigns in the heavenly realm, but he doesn't do it so much uh, immediately, that is directly, he reigns through the, through the angels. He asks them for advice. Remember the story of how can we get Ahab to go to his death? Uh, the uh, Isaiah chapter 6, who will go for us, the divine counsel. So God, God doesn't need any advice from anybody, but God chooses to use creatures that he has made in exercising his rulership in heaven. Fourth thing we saw was in an analogous way, God did create us in his image, and the Bible says in particular, so that we can rule on over earthly things. That like God's divine counsel rules in heaven, we were created to rule on earth. And we saw then after that that God has a vision for the earth. And that vision was to take um, Eden, the holy mountain where God meets with the divine counsel and human beings, where his heavenly family and his earthly family are joined together. God, that, that, that garden of God, that place of abundance, God gave us the commission of transforming the whole world into that Eden of God. Oh, then we saw, and we only got halfway through this point, that God will not let rebellion thwart his vision. And the fact of the matter is, there was rebellion. There was rebellion in heaven led by that serpent, and that serpent uh, enticed the humans to rebel against God. 
So there's rebellion in heaven, there's rebellion on the earth. Uh, But God will not let rebellion thwart his vision. God will make a way. He pledged himself to make a way for heaven and earth to be united. for, For the earth to be filled as the Eden of God. Uh, Turn with me to that well-known text, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Genesis 3, 15. After the rebellion of the heavenlies and the rebellion of humanity, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. But notice, between your offspring and hers. See the family language, offspring, children. Uh, there, there, there is this rebellion, but God is going to make a way. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, there's been somewhat of a realignment. Instead of there simply being a heavenly family and an earthly family, now there's a rebel family. And there's a loyal family. And the rebel family is made up of rebel angels. The serpent, the devil, Satan. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7, 8, and 9. Then war broke out in heaven. See, there there really is a heavenly realm. And war broke out in the heavenly realm. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. Now notice who the great dragon is. That ancient serpent. Genesis chapter 3. Called the devil, or Satan who leads the whole world astray. You see, we saw last week that he was not content being a son of God. He wanted to be the one who was supreme in heaven. And so he not, one of the things that he did was he, he said, I am going to take over by leading God's heavenly family astray so that they will worship me and not the exalted God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. He leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. See, the rebel family has rebel angels, but it also has rebel humans. Think of 1 John 3.12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one. See, originally Adam and Eve belonged to God. But after the rebellion, now they changed loyalty. And their son Cain belonged to the serpent, the devil, Satan, the evil one. Or John 8, 44. Jesus said to some of the people in his own day and age, he said, you belong to your father, the devil. Notice the family language. You belong to your father, the devil, when you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And how did 
your father, the devil, bring about that murder through one of his children named Cain, when Cain killed Abel. So there is, folks, there really is a real rebel family afoot. And that rebel family is made up of rebel angels. And it's made up of rebel children, sons of the devil. But thanks be to God, there's also a loyal family. There are loyal human beings. Notice I did not say perfect human beings. But there are loyal human beings like Seth. Oh, like Seth. (laughs) Hey, that's pretty good. I didn't plan that. But it's still true. Although I'm not talking about this Seth. And Enosh. You didn't name your first son Enosh, did you? No. It's like, the, it's like the name Hephzibah. Uh, his delight is in her. A beautiful name that nobody should use. <laughs> Hephzibah. Genesis 4, 25 to 26. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There are loyal humans. And in God's family, there are loyal angels. Hebrews 1.14, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now it says, are not all angels. And what it means is, are not are not all loyal angels, because we know that there are rebel angels. These are not sent to help. These are sent to hinder. But the loyal angels are ministering spirits sent to serve you as you are receiving the eternal inheritance of salvation. Or Revelation 19, 9-10. Then the angel said to me, John, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Then John says, at this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, don't do that. I am your fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters. Notice the family language again. Uh, Not only are you brothers and sisters in the Lord... But you have a multitude of brothers and sisters that are invisible to you, the angelic, loyal army. There is a rebel family of rebel angels and rebel humans, and there's a loyal family. There is a loyal family of loyal humans and loyal angels. Now, this I'm just going to tell you, and... I, I, I don't really have time to develop it, but it, it kind of fits in right here because what's God going to do since there's all this warfare in heaven and on earth? He, you see, his first earthly family, Adam and Eve, remember Adam was called son of God, his first earthly family failed. They failed to bring about God's vision of Eden throughout the whole earth. So what's God going to do? 
God has to choose. He has to choose out of all the nations. He has to choose one nation as his new earthly family. And this is combined with that story of Babel. Remember the story of Babel? Where everybody wanted to be one and unified, and they didn't want to spread throughout the whole earth and make the earth God's Eden. They wanted to make a name for themselves instead of for God. And so what did God do? God divided, key word, yes, God divided the languages. And in dividing the languages, He divided the nations. And what He did at that time was He disinherited. Maybe that's happened to one of you. You've certainly heard of it, right? Taken out of the will. That's what God did. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 32. God disinherits all the nations. And he chooses the children of Abraham to be his inheritance. Well, what about all of those nations. Look for a moment at Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. We'll just start in the first verse. Listen, you heavens. See, the, the, the angels are part of this text. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear you earth. The earth. See, there are two realms, and God's addressing the, the entirety of heaven and earth. The words of my mouth, let my teaching fall like dew and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you, pr- you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is He not your Father, your Creator, who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your Father, and He will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided the tongues the languages, and divided the lands. When he divided up all mankind, he set up boundaries for the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. That's probably what most of our translations say. And without going into any of the detail, the text is really better understood as according to the number of the sons of God. The angels. Seventy in particular. What did God do when He disinherited the nations? He assigned those nations to rebel sons of God. That's why Satan is called the prince of the air. That's why he is the prince of this present evil age. That's why when Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness, and said, worship me and I'll give you all of the nations, it was not an empty offer. 
It was a real offer because God had disinherited the nations. And he had consigned those nations to the powers of darkness. But what does the text go on to say? According to the number of the sons of God, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is his allotted inheritance. God disinherits all of the rebel family. And he says, now my special inheritance is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob. That's the next thing that we need to look at here is that how is it that God is going to not let rebellion thwart his vision of Eden throughout the whole earth, God chose a new family. A new family to bring about the realization of Eden on earth. And that's Abraham and his descendants. Look with me just at one text. We could look at a number, but just go to Deuteron- uh, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. If you don't have time to read the whole of Genesis... Oh, let's say you want to read the whole of Genesis, but you can only read three verses and you want to get the big picture of what Genesis is all about. These are the three verses right here. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country and your people and your father's household. Abram grew up in a rebel family. Abram grew up in a rebel family in Ur the Chaldees where the true God was not worshipped. He grew up in a nation that was under the power of darkness. Under the control of the evil one and his hostile forces. And God in his grace came and said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. He's going to bring them into the promised land. And oh, if we had time, we could look at all the connections between the Garden of Eden and the promised land. For example, there's a doorway into the Garden of Eden, and it's on the east. There's a doorway into the Promised Land, and it's on the east. At the doorway, there are cherubim guarding the way to the Tree of Life. When Joshua is about to enter into the Promised Land, he meets the man with the drawn sword in his hand, the cherubim guarding the way. And of course, the land is the most beautiful of all lands, the land flowing with milk and with honey where you will lack nothing. In other words, the the holy land is the new. It's the new Garden of Eden come to earth from which God's new family will not only prosper, but what will they do? I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, God didn't choose this family out of the rebel family to be his family as an end in and of itself. God made this choice of Abram and his family to inherit the promised land so that that would be a staging point through which God's original vision of all family in heaven and on earth, being his true family, Eden spreading through the whole earth, through this new family, the family of Abraham. He really is the new Adam. So what happens? 
Well, you know the rest of the story of Abram's family, don't you? Uh, let's just, let's get, a, let's get a summary, okay? We don't have time to read the whole book. Let's get a summary. Let's jump to the end by going to 2 Kings chapter 17, 1 to 8. Oh, really, 1 to 18. A few more verses. Well, if you want to, if you don't have time to read all of Kings, and you want to just get it in like 18 verses, plus one, here's the whole of what Kings is about. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria. And he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea, who had been uh, Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozon, on the Habor River, and in the towns of the Medes. Now, here's the explanation. Why? All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They were not loyal. Notice, it's not that they weren't perfect. God doesn't send them into exile because they had told a lie or had committed adultery or had stolen something. They got sent into exile because they became utterly disloyal. They were not worshiping the true God. They were worshiping other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. See, they became part of the rebel family. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From the watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and ever, under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They're part of the rebel family. They changed sides. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors, who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two cast, two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts. 
the angels represented by the stars in heaven, and they worship Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Now, we're only talking about the northern tribes at this point. But notice the repetition of the pattern. Adam and Eve, God's son, God's family, in God's garden, in the holy place, on trial, testing, the call for them to bring this Eden to the whole world, and they changed sides. And so what did God do? God kicked them out of his Eden. He says, okay, I'm going to try again. I've got a new son, Abram, and his seed, his descendants, and I put them in the new Garden of Eden so that they could start there and bring Eden to the whole world. And what did they do? They changed sides. History is repeating itself. They're as disloyal as Adam and Eve were, and so what did God have to do to them? He had to kick them out of the Garden of Eden, just like he had done. And then we see in verse 19, even Judah. At least there's hope that maybe the tribe of Judah will remain loyal. But even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. And eventually God sends the Babylonians. And the Babylonians come and they exile Judah from God's garden, from God's Eden. God tried again to, to honor humanity and to, to have humanity created in his image, Adam and Eve, bring about Eden through the whole earth. But humanity failed. So God does again, he, he chooses another human family the family of Abraham, to enter the, the new Eden, the new promised land, and to spread that Eden throughout the whole earth so that all families on earth would be blessed. But the human family did what? Failed again. Became disloyal to God. So what's he going to do? This is the final point in the sermon. This is when God said, if you want it done right, you have to do it yourself. And God said, Eden is going to come to the whole earth through humanity. But humanity as humanity, that plan's not going to work. It's got to come through humanity that is at the same time deity. That's why the advent. God said, I've got to come in human form, and I've got to do it myself. I've got to bring my own vision of Eden into realization. Let's look at just a couple of things about Jesus and advent. One, born of the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.35 the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one to be born will be called the Son of God. Adam was the Son of God. Israel was the Son of God. Now we have our third Son of God, but this one is born of a virgin. This one is born as a result of the miraculous work of the Spirit of God in the body of the Virgin Mary, fully human and fully divine, which is why he's not only born of the Spirit, but he's the only begotten Son. John 1.14, which we looked at months ago, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the my NIV says, one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Scholars debate whether this Greek word should be translated one and only, or only begotten. And in my estimation, it doesn't matter. Why not? I think it means he's the only begotten Son. And if he is the only begotten Son... By definition, he's the one and only son. He's the unique one. Why? See, the God has other sons. The angels are called the sons of God, but they're created. You and I are human sons, like Adam and like Israel. We're sons and daughters of God as his created children. But Jesus is the only begotten one, not created. Begotten, not created, is the historic confession of the Christian church. And since he is begotten, not created, he's unique. He's the one and only who is not created. He is fully God and fully man. God said if you want it done right, you have to do it yourself. Number three about Jesus, called out of Egypt. Matthew 2.15 uh, so after the birth of Christ, it says, so uh, he got up, this is uh, Joseph, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. Remember, there was a decree in Egypt where all males under two had to be killed. Herod issues that exact same decree after Jesus is born. Why? Because there is war in heaven and on earth. And the evil one does not want the seed of the woman to come to bring about God's vision of Eden throughout the earth. And so there's war against the seed. As was the case with the descendants of Abraham, so with the, it was the case of the descendant of Joseph and Mary. And Matthew goes on to say, so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. As Israel, the son, was called out of Egypt, Jesus, as the son, is called out of Egypt. If you want it done right, you have to do it yourself. And what happened to Jesus after he was called out of Egypt, baptized in the Jordan? Then Jesus came, Matthew 3.13, from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus is coming as the true son, divine and human. 
And he, that means he has to fully identify with his people. And his people, Israel, what did they do? They came out of Egypt and they had to go through the Red Sea. They had to go through across the Jordan River. And Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness, comes and so identifies that he has to be baptized in the Jordan with the baptism that Israel experienced going through the Red Sea and the Jordan River to enter into God's holy Eden. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. The, the invisible is now visible to the visible realm. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I couldn't end up being well pleased with Adam and Eve. I couldn't end up being well pleased with Israel. But here is my Son, anointed by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the true Son of God, to bring God's vision of heaven into realization. And God says, I am pleased with him. After he's baptized, he's tempted in the wilderness. In verse 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. The Spirit comes on him, and the first thing the Spirit does is lead him into the wilderness. Well, what happened to Israel in the wilderness for 40 years? They were tempted, and what did they do in the wilderness for 40 years? Time and time again, they failed. But when Jesus goes for 40 days into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, what does he do every time? Every time he succeeds. Every time he remains loyal to his heavenly Father. He never changes loyalty. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 5, 7 and 8. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. He was not heard in the sense that God kept him from dying. He was heard in another way, by God raising him from the dead. Son, notice the language, Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Here, finally, is a son of God who is like us in every way. Didn't we confess that this morning? But did you notice one qualification? Yet he was without sin. Like us in every way. Out of Egypt through the Jordan, tempted in the wilderness, and yet he remained faithful, obedient in spite of his suffering, so that as Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 5, 9 says, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Once made perfect, how could he be made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? 
Well, there's mystery, isn't there? Because the divine has taken on human flesh, and Jesus is fully human. Jesus really was tempted. These were not fake temptations. This was not fake news. This was real temptation. And Jesus, from the point of view of his humanity, could have chosen the wrong way, but he did not. He remained loyal to the Father. One more passage before we conclude. Romans 1, 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel promised beforehand through his prophets and in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. Who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Now notice, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed or declared the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, at the time of Jesus' resurrection, he becomes something that he was not prior to that. Prior to that, he was Son of God in humiliation. We notice that in Christ, in, at Christmas, right? He was born where? In a manger. Humiliation. That humiliation leading ultimately to the humiliation of the cross. He was Son of God in humiliation. But through the resurrection from the dead, he is Son of God in exaltation. He is, as Paul says, declared to be now Son of God in power. Now, how can he be Son of God in power? He's God. Doesn't he always have all power? Paul is speaking of him as the God and man who becomes something after his resurrection. He becomes Son of God in power. Which is why in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus can say, Now go! Where? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Why? Because now all authority, where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me. After the resurrection, he is Son of God in power. Now the Prince of Darkness has been cast out. The Prince of Darkness has been bound. Not so that he offers no resistance but that he cannot stop the gospel of Christ from penetrating the entire world so that what was spoken to Abraham will become true one day. Through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. And of course, Abram, son of God, failed, but Jesus did not. Through Jesus, loyal son of God, fully human, fully divine, God's vision will come about through the resurrection of the dead. I conclude with just reading a couple of passages. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, in those who are disobedient, all of us also live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires of its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were part of that rebel family. That's the truth. 
We were all part of that rebel family. Not one of us escapes that sentence. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, this is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Colossians 1.20, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He was before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of the cross. One more Philippians 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why Advent? Why did God become man? So that God's vision of Eden might one day be realized. God's heavenly family, God's earthly family, living in God's Eden to the glory of God. Why Advent? Why did God become man? so that the Lord's Prayer might one day be answered. As in heaven, so on earth. Let's respond by praying together, using the words that our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, 
and the glory forever. Amen. Let's also respond by standing and singing 195, Joy to the World.